This is the 11th chapter of Ecclesiastes. We're almost to the end of the book. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, 1 through 10. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way, of the, way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet and is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart the sight of your eyes, but know for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you have spoken through Solomon, we ask, Lord God, that as we look at this passage, that you would be at work. We, we know that your word is living and active. We know that your spirit works by your word. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would be doing that work here this morning. Would you apply this to our hearts? Would you show us our own sin and need? Would you show us more of your righteousness and of your glory? And would you captivate us, Lord God, with your goodness? We thank you. We praise you this morning, and we ask that you would continue to meet here with us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this. Amen. Well, this morning, as we begin in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, it reminds me that every passage of Scripture is different, and every passage of Scripture flows differently. There are some texts that you read in the Bible, and they're like a well-plotted pathway the author begins with the main point and they move forward and it's very easy to follow. Other, other passages are not so easy to follow. Some passages I would describe more like a mountaintop experience. You work through the text and you, you find that in the middle of the passage, there is the meaning or the purpose. And everything else before and after it sort of flows from that middle passage. I think that's the case this morning as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 11. I believe the meaning and the purpose of this chapter is found in verse 5, and I think everything else flows from verse 5, so that's where we're going to begin. Here's what verse 5 says in the middle of the 11th chapter. Solomon says, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. 
And there in the middle of the chapter, there's a very simple argument that Solomon puts forward, but it's a summary of everything we've read in this book so far, and it simply goes like this. Just as you do not know the way that a soul of a human being is knit together with its physical body in the womb of his mother, so you do not, do not know the way of God who makes everything. And I think the end of that verse probably ought to be better translated, you do not know the way of God who does everything or who causes everything. It's a, it's a summary of Solomon's thought thus far because it's a, it's a verse that deals with control. In, in verse 5, Solomon is simply saying this, as you do not know the work of the Lord in the womb of a mother, so you do not know the ways of the Lord who does everything, who causes all things, whose plans are hidden from you, whose ways are not your ways. Therefore, you do not know the work of the Lord. And the argument this morning that's going to be made is a simple argument. The question of control will be raised, and as we look at the 11th chapter, we're going to talk about if, if God is in control of everything, and if we don't have control of those things, then how ought we to live our lives in a world where the Almighty God controls all things? As you see, the title of the sermon this morning is God Who Does Everything, a God Who Causes All Things. I want to begin, though, taking a step back and talking about how we get to this point. As we think about the, uh, the posture that we have in this world towards a God who controls all things, and I'll, I'll begin with a little graph, okay? This, I think, will help you understand the biblical mindset that's being presented in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a small graph, x-axis and a y-axis. On the x-axis, there is man, and this is man in control, and this is man without control, okay? The y-axis is God. This is God controlling, God in control of all things. This is God without control. Now, there's four general postures, I think, that you find in this world, and so we'll talk about those, and then we'll talk about the biblical posture. First of all, there is what I would call the natural man, okay, the natural man. The natural man is the man who believes that he's in control of all things and that there is either no God or that God has no control, okay? This is us as we come into the world. This is us born into this world, and, and we believe that we control all that comes to pass, that we, that we can affect our outcomes, that we can affect our future, that we have authority over all the sphere of life that we entertain over, and that there is nothing else outside of us. This is the general posture of the world that we live in, okay? I was uh, watching a, a, a children's show with my children this past week, and I kept thinking, man, the, the themes in these cartoons are all sort of lame, and they're all the same, and in and, and every cartoon you watch, this was the theme. You have it within yourself, okay? You have the power within you. Y you control your destiny. You determine what happens, and that's the sort of empowering message of the day, that we control all things, that there is no God, or He doesn't control the outcomes. The second posture of, of, of many people in this world is what I would call the enlightened man, the enlightened man, this is some version of I'm in control and God's in control. This is the person who wakes up one morning and says, oh, it, wait a second, it seems like maybe everything isn't in my control. Maybe there's something outside of me, okay? Maybe there's something more. Maybe I realize that I, I don't exercise authority over all the things that I thought I did. Maybe I realize that I don't determine my future at least completely. And so the enlightened man acknowledges at the very least that there's something outside of them. 
that there's something else going on. Down here is what I would call the despondent man. This is the despondent, the futile, the, the, the desperate man. This is the one who wakes up one day and says, I have no control and there's nothing else going on out there. There is, there is no one exercising control over this. It's all chaos. It's all meaningless. It, it, there, there is no purpose. There's no meaning. There's nothing going on. So just go on living and enjoy life, okay? Uh, that's the, the futile man, the despondent man. That, that's a predominant uh, thought in our world as well, okay? So we have natural men. We have enlightened men. We have despondent men. And really, this is where we're at this morning. This is the biblical man. When I say man, I, I also include women, okay? This is the biblical man or woman, okay? And that is, in this corner of the, of the quadrant here, this is uh, that, that man doesn't have control, but God has control. This is, as, you've been, as we've been working through the book of Ecclesiastes, this is the natural reaction to everything we've read. If we've been reading the book correctly... From the beginning of the book, talking about meaning and purpose and how it's found in God and not in this world, to the point in chapter 6 when we talked about the soul, or when we get to the last few verses when we talked about death and chance and everything in this world that Solomon's been wrestling with, if we read it correctly, we come to the conclusion that we have no control over the events of this world, but rather God has control over everything that comes to pass, okay? That God, the Almighty God, exercises authority over all of His creation. Now, this is what chapter 11 is doing then. Chapter 11 is going to wrestle with the question, if that's true, how ought we to live? And that's not simply a hypothetical question. That is a very practical question, isn't it? Because if we one day wake up by the Spirit of God working in our hearts, we realize we don't have control, God has control, then there's a very important question that says, well, if God has control, then what am I doing? What's the purpose of living or of choosing or of worrying about what will come to pass or what won't? Why should I be concerned with any of it? And how ought I to live in a world where God has control and I don't? That's what's happening in chapter 11. Okay, so you see the, the outline in your bullets, and it's very simple, and we're going to just do kind of a, a shotgun approach. There's a lot in this chapter, it's only 10 verses, but there's a lot about how to live in light of that, and we're just going to talk about these things briefly. First of all, you see on your handout, first conclusion is we're, we're to live boldly. We're to live boldly, that's in verse 1, okay? We're to live boldly. Now, before we get to verse 1, I'll give you a, a quick example. I think it helps make sense of the passage. Uh, way back when, when I uh, coached volleyball at Liberty, uh, after the first few years of coaching volleyball, I started to bring my children. First, I brought them to practices, and then I would bring them to games. They would travel on the team bus with us. And I was surprised at how quickly they acclimated uh, to the volleyball team. Almost immediately, they just fell in, and they began to make friends, and they began to act as if they just belonged there. It kind of was bewildering to me, but then I realized one day we're, we're driving, and we got to campus, and one of my kids in the back seat said, hey, Dad, this is your university, right? This is your university, and I said, well, it's not really my university, but I get what you're saying, and we're, dri we're driving through campus, and said, Dad, that's your gym. That's where your guys practice for volleyball, right? Said, okay, that's not really my gym, but I get what you're saying. We drove by the Vine Center, and they said, Dad, that's your stadium. That's where your team plays volleyball. And I thought, okay. 
Uh, we'll just say, yeah, that's my university, my gym, my stadium, okay? But for me, it communicated uh, why it was that my kids so easily acclimated to the volleyball team. They had this perspective that this was their father's university, and it was their father's team, and it was their father's gym. And so they walked in like they owned the place, okay? We belong here. This is our dad's. This is the, this is the general posture as you begin Ecclesiastes chapter 11, that's why in verse 1 you see this exhortation to bold living. There in verse 1, Solomon says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. And I, I, I don't know why anyone would throw their bread in the water, okay? There's, it's a nonsensical thing. You know if you throw your bread in the water, it dissolves quickly. The fish, they eat it. The ducks, they eat it. I don't know what, but it's gone but, but this, is not, this is not saying that you put your bread in the water and a few days, literally, practically, you'll find it. What it is saying is that in, in, in reality, if we recognize that God is in control of all things and that He is our Father, then we take our sustenance, the things we need, we hold them with an open hand, and we realize that we come back that God will provide for our needs, that what we need will be there when we need it. We come back in a few days, the bread will be on the water, Okay that our God who controls all things will provide for us. And so I think there's an exhortation to bold living. We live as if our Father controls everything, as if He has numbered our days, as if He has ordered our ways, as if He opens and closes our doors, as if He decides when we wake and when we sleep, as, he, as if He has numbered the beginning from the end for us, okay? We, we live boldly because of it. The second thing I think you see in this passage is uh, that we, we give confidently. We give confidently. That's, that's verse 2. You see there what verse 2 says. Verse 2, Solomon says, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. And you've probably heard this idea before that numbers in the Bible are important. Every time a, a number is used, it has some sort of meaning. And we know the number seven, right? The number seven is a depiction of fullness. It is a picture of completeness. Okay, and so what Solomon begins here by saying is he says, you know, give, give a portion to seven. Give a full portion. Give a complete portion, that is, invest yourself into others. But there's there's an exhortation even to more. We know that when we see seven and then a number added to it, that there's this, okay, you're saying that it's full plus, plus some, right? That's when Jesus says, listen, if someone sins against you and they come to you, forgive them. Not seven times, but seven times, 70 times, right? That is a complete number of times and more, more than you ever think that you'll have to. That's the exhortation here. In verse 2, give a portion to seven or even to eight. I'd put it in my own words. I'd say that Solomon is saying, give of yourself to others fully, completely, and even more so, okay? Going above and beyond, investing yourself into those around you. Give of yourself as much as you can and continue giving. And you see the, the little reason that he gives there on the end of that verse. He says, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. He's saying we, we live in light of the fact that we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know. God knows. We don't know. Therefore, today, give of yourself completely to others. Give confidently. You know, I, a lot of times people come into my office and they ask, 
uh, as they're talking about God's control over all things, how, how do I know what God's will is for my life? How do I know where I should be investing myself? How do I know where I should be pouring in? Uh, where should I be doing that? And I, we often, we kind of spin our wheels over that, I think needlessly, because my, my answer is always very simple. I don't know where you're called tomorrow or next week or next year. I know where you're called right now, and it's where you're at. And, and where you're at is very simple. If you're a student, God's called you to be a student. If you're, if you're a husband or a wife, he's called you to be a husband or wife. If you're, you're a parent, he's called you to be a parent. If you have a job, he's called you to be an employee, okay? If you live in Lynchburg or Forest or Virginia, which I think is almost everybody here, he's called you to be a citizen of Virginia or wherever you live, okay? And you can confidently know if God has called you there, there he has called you to invest yourself. So don't... Don't use it as an excuse. I don't know where God is calling me. He's, it's obvious where he's called you. He's called you where he has placed you. And where he has placed you, he has called you to serve, to give confidently of yourself, for you don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know where he will have you tomorrow. You don't know what things he has planned for you tomorrow, but you know where he has placed you today. He's also made you a, a member of Mercy Presbyterian Church, okay? For, for many of you, if you're not a member, become a member but he's made, he's made you a member of this church. That's a place you can invest yourself, okay? So, so giving confidently. That's, the, that's the, the second thing. The third, the third thing we notice in this passage, and this is important, we, we have to acknowledge our lack of control. Acknowledge the lack of control. That would be verses 3 and 4. Here's the way that verses 3 and 4 read. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Actually, it's just verse 3, not verse 4, okay? It's verse 3. Acknowledging the lack of control. You, you see there in verse 3, as Solomon is speaking, he's, he's simply stating things that are obvious in nature that are obviously out of your control, Right? He says, if the clouds are full of rain, they will empty themselves on the earth. And the, the idea is, you can go outside and you can say, I don't want it to rain, but it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you want. When the clouds are full of rain, they will rain. Just as a tree, when it falls to the north or to the south, it falls to the north or the south, and there it will lie. You have no control over that. Acknowledging that you, ha you don't have control over life, but rather that God does, is an important thing for Christians to constantly be doing. We live life with this facade that we control our outcomes and we control our future and that we have authority over what comes to pass, but we, we don't have that control. God has that control. It reminds me of my great-great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, my great-grandfather. Uh, he uh, passed away about five years ago. He was 99 when he passed away. And for the last 10 years of his life, he lived in his farmhouse. He never left his farmhouse. He always lived there. But when he was maybe about 92, he stopped being able to do all the farm work as he used to, but he figured out a way that he could still do it. He would take his lawn chair out, and he would set up his lawn chair, and he would do the same things, but he would do it sitting in his lawn chair. And so he would set up the lawn chair, and he would shovel corn. And then he moved the lawn chair and shovel corn, and that's what he did. Well, uh, he also would take his lawn chair and set it up to cut down trees. He would set up his lawn chair at the base of a tree with his chainsaw, and he would cut the tree down. And uh, it worked pretty well for him for a few years. When he was 95, 
uh, he thought the tree was going to fall one way, and it fell the other way. It fell right on top of him, and he, he broke his back. But uh, he made it. He was a resilient man, and he, he survived, and he kept going. But uh, having this conversation with him after, he, he said, you know, I've, I've cut a thousand trees down. I know which way they're going to fall, and, and yet it didn't fall the way he thought it would. We think we have control over all of creation. We think we have control over our lives. But even a small example tells us we don't exercise that authority. It's God who has that control. And so acknowledging our lack of control in this world is an important thing for us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ because when we do that, we get rid of the facade, okay? We get rid of the fake idea and we reconcile with the reality that our God is the one who exercises that authority. It humbles our hearts, right? It moves us not only to thanksgiving, but it moves us to prayer, doesn't it? Right? We, we become a praying people because we realize that our, our days are not guaranteed. Our, our tomorrow is not guaranteed for the Lord has numbered our days again. Okay? So he exercises that authority. The fourth thing we see in this passage, well, actually, I had a little quote for you. This is a Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry says, God has wisely kept us in the dark concerning future events, and he's reserved for himself the knowledge of them that he may train us up in a dependence upon him and a continued readiness for every event of this life, okay? Same exact thing that I just shared with you. So, uh, the, the, the fourth thing that you see written there in your handout, your bulletin, is I, I put this, just, just do something, just do something that glorifies the Lord, okay? Just do something. I think this is also an encouragement in this passage, and I see it in verses 4 and 6. So verse 4 says, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So you see the potential problem there, right? We have two different scenarios, uh, one person who regards the wind and one person who regards the clouds. So you see what this person is saying. They go out to plant their field, and they're saying, ooh, just a little bit too windy today. Uh, tomorrow I'll plant. And they wake up the next day, and they say, ooh, not enough wind today. Tomorrow I'll plant. And they you know, coming from the left, coming from the right, who knows? It's just the wind isn't right. Uh, or the other person who regards the clouds for reaping, they say, might rain today, I'll reap tomorrow. A little too hot out there today, maybe I'll reap the next day. And I was thinking about this, this was so relevant to me this week, because if you've been trying to rake your leaves the last month, you know. I mean, I get uh, one day off a week and I'm going to rake my leaves, and every day I plan to rake my leaves, it rains. Or it's too windy. And I get a month or two in, I realize I haven't raked my leaves, and my neighbors are probably so frustrated because my yard is piling up with leaves, but I just can't find the right day to rake my leaves, okay? So the exhortation in verse 6 is this. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Simple exhortation, Okay. You don't know how the day will go. You don't know what clouds will come, whether the wind will come. You don't know. You lack that control. So simply do what the Lord God has called you to do in the small things and the big things. Again, if, if, he's, called you, if he's called you to be an employee or he's called you to a certain type of work, do your work. Do it to the glory of God. Okay? If, if he has called you to be a citizen, be a citizen to the glory of God. Do the small things. Don't wait trying to read the wind or to try and figure out what's going to happen or not going to happen. Simply be faithful in obedience to God where he has placed you. And do that day in and day out. 
I mean, that's what verse 6 means. In the morning sow your seed, at evening withhold not your hand. It means go, do your work. Just, just do it. Do it to the glory of God. And so, again, that's another encouragement. People all the time, when we talk about uh, God's control, people all the time, they reserve themselves to sort of a, a, a sad, despondent fatalism, okay? Or, okay, and a fatalism would say, or if, if God has planned it, what, what should I do? There's nothing for me to do. You know, it's part of God's plan. Just reserve myself to do nothing. Or, or they would say, um, how can I know what God's will is, right? This is very popular with young people thinking about dating, okay, for young Christians. Sometimes they get wrapped up in their own minds. They say, well, okay, well, how do I know if this is the person I'm going to marry? And if I don't know if I'm going to marry them, how should I know if I should date them? And if I don't know if I should date them, how do I know if I should become friends with them? If I don't know if I should become friends with them, how do I know, right? And you begin this long, cyclical cycle uh, that is unclear about the will of God and the authority of God, and you just do nothing. What the passage is saying is just do something to the glory of God. Just do something to the glory of God. Honestly, that's a phrase. It's not my phrase. It comes from Kevin DeYoung's book called Just Do Something. If you've never read it before, I think it's a good one, especially for young believers. Just do something. Let me read you a paragraph from that, uh, just two sentences from that book. He says, so, so go marry someone, provided that you're equally yoked and you actually like being with each other. Go get a job, provided that it's not wicked. Go live somewhere in something with somebody or with nobody. But put aside the passivity and the quest for complete fulfillment and the perfectionism and the preoccupation with the future. And for God's sake, start making some decisions in your life. Uh, don't wait for the liver shiver. If you're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you will be in God's will, so just go out and do something. 